Hey everyone, Christopher Legras here. This is the second in a series of podcasts for Rare Bird Books. This March, Rare Bird published my debut novel and stories, Weather to Fly. Weather to Fly follows the adventures and misadventures of a group of pilots and their airplanes from World War II to the present. It's about how the passions and loves we discover in life sustain us through good times and bad. Weather to Fly is available in hardcover and Kindle editions on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. I'm here today with Jason Alisheran. Jason is the founder of JA Films and is a Los Angeles-based film producer. Prior to starting JA Films, Jason developed a script for and co-produced the Academy Award-nominated A Single Man. Directed by Tom Ford and starring Colin Firth and Julianne Moore, A Single Man was nominated for three Golden Globes and three Independent Spirit Awards, including Best First Screenplay and Best First Feature. Previously, Jason worked in feature development at DreamWorks, where he was involved with films including Collateral, Transformers, Meet the Fockers, Red Eye, and Paycheck. He began his career at the Endeavor Talent Agency. It's quite a resume, and we're really lucky to have a few minutes with him today. Welcome, Jay. Hey, guys. Hey, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> me too. Um, so what we're going to talk about uh, with Jay about his experiences and successes in Hollywood and about really the, the differences and similarities in screenwriting versus novel and short story writing. You know, Jay and I are both in the storytelling business, but that's pretty much where our similarities end. And so we kind of are thinking of today's conversation as a, a sort of successful storytelling 101 with a couple of guys who made story their passion for, for better and for worse. So, <laughs> Um, you know, audiences and readers, obviously, they only see the final product, the movie on the screen or, or the book in their hands. And so this podcast is really about the, that 99 or 99.9% of the work and, and, and trial and tribulation that the audiences and readers never see. And uh, we hope it will provide some really cool and uh, really interesting insights. So does that sound good? Sounds great to me. Boy, I want to hear these people. I mean, these people sound smart. I mean, it's not you and me, that's, that's for sure. There must be somebody else coming on this podcast, I think. <laughs> we'll try to do our best, though, right? We'll try to fake it. Let's try to fake it. What's that? Let's try to fake it. <laughs> fake it till we make it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably more Hollywood than it is uh, novel writing, but... Oh, no, we're, we're even bigger fakers. We just sound really smart when we're doing it. <laughs> and more literate. Well, you know, you've, you've spent a lot of your career, most of your career, in and around the entertainment business. And can you, can you like, even guesstimate or estimate how many spec screenplays you've read by this point? Um, well, I mean, honestly, it's not just spec screenplays. I read, but I mean, I'm reading movies that are set up in studios or movies that I've been working on as a producer or when I was at the studio or when I was at an agency, we were reading for clients, but I mean, so it's not necessarily just spec screenplays, but screenplays in general. I mean, I don't know, 4,000, something like that. Wow. Sounds right. 4,000. Over. So that's like 15 years. That's like multiple screenplays per day, right? I think it, I used to um, add it all up. I think it sometimes works out to about, and some weeks are better than others. It probably works out to like five to seven to 10 a week and something like that. 
Um, wow. So there. So you probably have a pretty good system down for evaluating screenplays at this point. You, you, you kind of know what you're doing. I don't know about that, but we'll, <laughs> I'll share some in, in, insights anyway. Um, <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, just to, gate, just to start out the gate, like a, just like the most basic level when, when a new screenplay from whatever quarter it comes onto your desk, just kind of tell us a little bit about your process. What's the first kind of things you look for, and uh, how do you approach these these properties? I mean, I think instinctively, sort of first off, I'll approach it um, by seeing if the movie has a structure. Um, most sort of professional scripts in Hollywood, like if you're reading a, a movie, a, a script that's set up at a studio, it's going to have that structure, so you're it's fine. It's not a problem. I think right after that, I'm looking for what is the concept for the movie. And I'm asking myself, like, you know, is the concept unique? Is it something that's interesting? You know, will it hook an audience? You know, is it something that we haven't seen before? I mean, I think the basic litmus test is we're not just necessarily evaluating these things as if they're just screenplays. We're really saying, is this going to be a movie? In that if this story, if I was at, you know, Redbox and there were 10 titles, I'm at my supermarket, and I have to choose between 10 movies, you know, would I choose this concept over the other nine? You know, and that's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to come up with a concept that will make consumers forget about all the other competition. I mean, after that, I think what I really want to see is how a writer handles their craft. Um, you know, for example, like what's the quest of the movie? You know, what are the major turns in the film? Um, and we'll talk about structure like later on, but you know, like what's the end of act one? What's the midpoint? What's the end of act two? And, um, and where do they occur? Um, you know, for example, like if I'm reading a script and the end of Act One is on page fifty, you know, then I know the screenplay is is in trouble. Um, what, I mean, why, that, where, where should Act One be? I mean, look, it's not. It, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about structure. I think sometimes people think about screenplay structure and they think it's about these hard and fast rules, um, as if we're writing a formula. And it's not. It's it's just the conventions of the art form. And it's, it's, I like to say it's like a sonnet. The sonnet has certain uh, parameters and like a rhyming scheme and stanzas. And after that, you can do anything you want. Um, so the point being, if you're sort of traditional, say a comedy clocks in it somewhere like two hours, um, one page of the script is one minute of film. That's 120 pages or less. Um, then, you know, you kind of want your end of act one to be somewhere page... 27, 30, something like that, um, because there's other things you need to, you know, be focusing on. There's other parts of the script later. If you're if you're in the back one is on page 50, it begs the question: Well, what have you been doing for those first 50 minutes? If it takes 50 minutes for us to start the film, um, so, so I'm sort of hearing you say that even if there's that kind of cool, catchy idea, that if the writer doesn't have just that that absolute kind of fundamental down, that the act one break should be. 27 to 30 into the screenplay, you're probably not really that impressed. And it, and it almost makes you sort of question whether this person knows what they're doing. A little bit. I mean, look, it, it's not, again, it's not hard and fast rules. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, a screenplay or a movie, it's about keeping the audience interested. Like, if it, it's possible the act break could be later, and there are movies where the act break is later. 
Um, but you better be keeping it interesting and surprising in those first 50 pages. But I, I'm saying category. So there are exceptions and you do see them, but normally the people that are sort of breaking those rules have a higher skill set. But say if I'm getting, for lack of a better word, a script off the street, and I see this, I'm, most of the time, it, you know, it'll indicate to me this person might not exactly know or not might have the same facility with the craft of screenwriting that, you know, that they should. So before you try the, uh, the triple axle, you should learn how to skate backwards first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. And, and, and you said a minute ago, and actually I found this interesting because you and I have talked about this stuff a lot over the years, and this is a new, a new kind of turn of phrase. You said when you're reading a screenplay, you're not really reading a screenplay or you're not, you're not looking for a screenplay, but you're looking for a movie. That's kind of interesting. Does that mean that when you're, when you're going through a screenplay, are you sort of almost projecting in your imagination what this could look like? Is it that, is it that literal? I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, look, I think when I first started at a talent agency, there was a guy and he told me, it's going to take you about 300 scripts and reading 300 scripts until you'll be able to really digest the script, like to see it as a movie. It's going to take you time. Um, and I think that's right. Um, and so now it's obviously very, um, it's like breathing to me now. But I don't, so I can visualize the movie in my head at the same time, having made movies, there are so many different incarnations of that film, depending on what filmmaker you get, what stars you get. Um, so that I, 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 what I'm trying to say is I don't have a very concrete vision of what this movie is exactly going to look like because that movie could be dialed up or back any different ways. I mean, for me, it's really focusing on the storytelling. Um, but to parent what you said, it's, well, can this be a movie in that will it attract an audience? Will it attract a filmmaker? Is it something a movie star wants to play? I think that would be the answer to your question about reading something to see if it would be a film. Interesting. Interesting. You, you, you've talked a lot about the difference between kind of an, an intellectually catchy idea, something that, that makes you think, well, I've never heard that before. And, and something that really kind of is an emotional uh, hook. Can you talk a little bit about how that's different? Because, when, you know, I think when the layperson or, you know, when I go to a movie and, and I like to think I know a little bit about how story works, I haven't read 300 screenplays. I'm not even sure if I've seen 300 movies, to be perfectly honest, in my life. Um, and so I still, you know, there's that wow factor for me, which is, which is cool. There's still a little bit of that magic, like, wow, I... I, I don't fully understand how this works. And so when I hear a cool idea for a movie, I think, well, that must be the beginning, middle, and the end. You've got a great idea. Okay, go. But right. that's not enough to sell you. So what's the difference between an intellectual idea that might be cool and that real emotional hook that you go, ah, this is a movie? I think my favorite book, I think the best book on screenwriting is a book called Save the Cat. It's written by Blake Snyder. And he was a working writer, and it's just a really great practical advice in terms of how screenplay, screenwriting works. And it, Blake's got a lot of great maxims, but one of the ones that's really great is that he says that a concept for a movie should be primal. 
right? Like it should have huge wow. stakes. It should be life or death. You know, it should, it should be like, are you going to get the girl or is she going to marry somebody else? You know, is Los Angeles going to survive and be swallowed up by a series of earthquakes? You know, will Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, survive the wilderness right. and avenge, avenge his son's death? You know, so I think in terms of storytelling, and it's not just look, it's not just Hollywood. You know, you can go back to you know Plato and Aristotle. You know, in terms of storytelling, especially in movies, you know, humans we like drama and conflict, and so every movie that you've ever watched, it's got. Conflict, drama, high stakes. It's the same thing for TV. I mean, it's the same thing for documentary films that are good. Um, so the point is, you know, the drama we can relate to the most, that the largest audience can relate to the most, is something that's emotional, something we can feel. So, you know, Chris, you and I have had this discussion before, you know, intellectual versus emotional. And the best example I could maybe give is, you know, I read the New York Times every day. You know, and I love 60 Minutes, and I read and I watch Vice magazine. You know, and there's so many stories in there that are interesting to me in some capacity. But that doesn't mean that they would make good movies, right? So what I'm trying to say is that... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm not saying that, you know, with your film, you don't want the audience to think. I'm not saying that at all. But if you had your pick between whether a movie is going to make the audience think or feel something, you'd want them to feel something every time. Because if your movie is all thinking and no feeling, you're kind of screwed. You know, like getting people <laughs> to watch a movie and enjoy it is about getting them to care. And they care if they feel something. I mean, I, I hope that maybe explains it. I'm not sure if I did a good job of No, no, you did. No, no, you absolutely did, and that's, that's, you know, I think you hit on kind of one of the, the universals, and not to get too, you know, hokey about it, but you mentioned a second ago, you know, Aristotle and Plato. I mean, look, there's a reason that we still read the Odyssey, right? I mean, are there any higher stakes than, you know, you just won a war, you're trying to get home, and literally the gods are against you, and you're trying to, to get back to your wife who's being courted by suitors. I mean, that is the ultimate high-stakes story, and it is you know, is literally timeless. We've been reading it now for, what, 2,200 years. And that's what's always fascinating to me. I was, I was down in San Diego this past week and happened to bump into a guy who works for a production company, and they're, what they're involved in is streaming, you know, these three- and four-minute clips that, you know, are produced by, you know, in a lot of cases, kids in their, in their living rooms, you know, teenagers. And they get millions of hits. And my first question to him is, who could possibly be interested in that? And he said, you have no idea how much life you can fit into three minutes. Hmm. And that was kind of one of these wow moments for me. And it was, it, was, it was literally this moment where I thought, you know, that is the universal truth of storytelling. And it's true whether you're writing a novel, whether you're doing a three-minute you know, podcast, or a $200 million tentpole, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is that you have to fit that absolute, as you said a minute ago, primal, my God, I, I, I am absolutely invested in this as a reader or as an audience member. And, and, and that's a universal truth, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, again, this is not a new concept. I mean, I've said for a while that if you look at Shakespeare, you know, he had high-concept ideas for all of his plays. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is a high-concept idea. 
The Merchant of Venice is a high concept quandary. How do you, you, let me interject right there. How how do you think that sort of this idea of high concept sort of, you know, among the, among sort of the intellectual set, it's kind of looked down upon like, oh, that's formulaic or, oh, that's high concept. And you make a really good point. It's like, yeah, Shakespeare was high concept. Shakespeare would probably, if he were alive today, would be pitching Spielberg, right? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And Tony Kushner would, together. It'd be Tony Kushner and Spielberg and Shakespeare in one. <laughs> it's like the dream team, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine like what Hemingway would, would do with Twitter? <laughs> um, I mean, he, he was the old, you know, the, the, the six, the six, the six word story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. True. That's kind of funny, actually. That's actually a good idea for a short film. <laughs> You're welcome. It is. Well, I'm not going to do it. Maybe one of the viewers will do it. The listeners. It's a good idea. Oh, nice. Uh, maybe I'll have to develop um, that. I'll bring it to you. <laughs> well, look, to answer your question about high concept, I think first the the term has actually been is misunderstood and has been confused um, for a long time. Um, the term originally, it, it, it originated with actually Michael Eisner. He ran Paramount back in the day, and Jeffrey Kastenberg was his president of production, and Eisner came up with this idea of high concept. And high concept was simply defined as a unique idea expressed briefly. That's all it was. So, um, you know, an example of a high concept idea could be... Go ahead. No, I keep interrupting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, like an example of a high concept idea could be Crimson Tide, because the idea is a mutiny on a nuclear submarine. That is a unique idea expressed in about, what, six words? Um, You know, the 40-year-old virgin is a high-concept idea, because it's unique, and the title is the logline. And so that's what Eisner's... Go ahead. Let me me just challenge challenge you on that just a little bit. When you say, let's say, Crimson Tide, mutiny aboard a nuclear submarine... I hear that, and you know, that's like almost a six-word story right there. The only unique part of it is nuclear, because we, you well, know, it's, it's, also, it's also mutiny. I mean, you know, a lot of us love the original mutiny on the bounty. That's fraught with conflict. You have a contained environment in which there is a coup, and who's going to win, and who will stay alive? And now you've added the stakes of, oh, by the way, there's a nu- there are nuclear weapons. So it's it's in a way it's an old story told with a new twist. Um, well, that kind of goes with the idea that there's only, there's only ever been, you know, six original stories in, in, in history. It's just, we've been revising them and retelling them and increasing the stakes ever since. I mean, the stakes for mutiny on a bounty are pretty well contained within the HMS bounty. And that's enough to, to, to sustain a novel and a movie you can't retell that story, but you can put mutiny on the bounty aboard the USS Dallas, and now all of a sudden the entire world is at stake. The story doesn't mm-hmm. really change all that. I think that people get, this is just my opinion, I think this idea of originality is overrated. And don't, don't get me wrong, you <laughs> always want to be... No, I'm serious. You I should think, work for the Clinton campaign. <laughs> I, I mean that in terms of 
people believe, well, I'm going to create a piece of art that has never been seen before. There are very, very few instances of that. And yet there is a lot of really great art out there. So what I would say is that some of these things that might relate to something you've seen before, the reason they might have a resonance is that it relates to us as human beings. You know, Quentin Tarantino has never been accused of being a derivative filmmaker or an unoriginal filmmaker. But if you look at a movie like The Hateful Eight or you look at a movie like Inglorious Bastards, those are revenge tales at their core. But it doesn't take away from any of the originality of what he did within it. So again, you know, there's um, another part. Again, I will, I will quote Blake Snyder in his book. But one of the great maxims he said he learned when um, he was working in a studio system, he said an idiot studio executive said something to him, which was also incredibly smart. And the studio executive said, give me the same thing, only different. <laughs> Meaning that you might be pitching me Die Hard, but we've already seen Die Hard. So I want the stakes of Die Hard, but you're going to have to give it in a package the audience has not seen before. And I, so I, and I think that, so, sorry, that's sort of the no, million dollar okay. task. So in other words, we, we can, we can rewrite Die Hard, but we need to put it aboard a nuclear submarine or something, something like, I mean, I'm being facetious, but it's not so much even the, the plot points or even, even the characters. Can I go that far that the characters can almost be somewhat derivative as long as you have that, like, Oh my God. I'm going to be riveted for two and a half hours until I figure out if Chris Pratt has saved the universe. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a different example. I mean, what is the quote that, um, well, let me back that. Let, let me give you an example of copying. So do you know the movie blow up by Michelangelo Antonio? Yes. It's from like the sixties. I want to say, um, and the concept for the movie is a man is a fashion photographer and he is out one day just taking random pictures. He takes a picture, it's like of a tree somewhere in London. He gets home, he develops the picture. And he sees something kind of in the picture and he blows it up. Then he blows up something again. And in blowing it up, he realizes he's actually seen a murder. Now, the concept for blow up is very similar to the movie The Conversation. The conversation is about a man who, you know, is a wiretap Gene Hackman, Hackman, Francis Ford Coppola. And and there are so many similarities between those two films. So, again, I'm giving you that. Those are both excellent films. I think they actually might be on AFI's list of the top 100 movies of all time. But they're also examples of give me the same thing, only different. You're taking something that looked familiar and then you're turning it. I mean, Avatar is, po- is the Pocahontas story. I mean, basically, exactly. Sure, interesting, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny, just as a quick aside, uh, when I was, in my first two years after college, I lived in San Francisco, and my apartment building was where Gene Hackman lived. They actually filmed it in my building, the conversation. Nice. <laughs> well, and that when he you know, rips up everything? That's when he rips up his apartment, looking for the, from the, for the bugs? Yeah, I actually I got drunk one night and reenacted that. (laughs) 
Well, you know, it's interesting, and that's there is another similarity. You know, when you think of you know a wildly successful novelist, as Stephen King. I mean, you look at The Shining. The Shining's a haunted house story. That's pretty much it, right? Mm-hmm. And and within that, you've got you know the, the the theme of alcoholism and the and the marriage falling apart and child abuse and 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 the kid and so on and so forth. But it really is all within the context of a haunted house story, and the high stakes are: are they going to make it out? That's mm-hmm. it, and it's a 100-page novel. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting because you know Stephen King famously just loathed the uh, uh, Kubrick's interpretation of The Shining. He said he called it a, a Ferrari without an engine. He said it was uh-huh. beautiful to look at, exquisitely filmed. He said he absolutely takes nothing from that. But in the very first frame, when they're driving up into that winding road, they're in the the Volkswagen Beetle going up to the Overlook Hotel, in the first frame, Jack Nicholson is already insane. Mm-hmm. And he just goes mm-hmm. a little crazier. Whereas in the book, in the opening scene, he's at home with Danny, with his wife. They're a, a, a very happy family. And the stakes in the book are actually much, much higher than the stakes in the film. And you know, sort of mm-hmm. the ultimate example of that, he said that in, you know, at the end of the movie... Jack Nicholson freezes to death. Well, at the end of the book, mm-hmm. he burns to death as the as the hotel burns to the ground. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, you know, the the Shining as a film is you know it's an AFI film. It's it's extremely well regarded. But that's an example of where I think you can I want to say do more with a novel because that kind of sounds cheap, but. You just have so much more space to play with. And I would argue you can make a lot more mistakes in a novel than you can in a movie. I mean, you're, 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 you're making a movie, you've got two hours, and you better have my attention every minute. Whereas with I think the novel, you're exactly I'm right. Whereas with the novel, exactly. You know, and there, Stephen King, again, is, is kind of famous for this. Carl Hyacin is, is famous for this. Tom Dorsey, Tom Clancy, kind of all of the, the big-name writers you can think of. You know, a lot of those novels, there's about 50 or 100 pages where you just think, you guys really should have edited this out. But you have the ability to do that in a novel because the audience, your reader, is already committed. If I'm 150 pages in, all right, well, I'm going to give you 50 pages to, to muck around because I've already gone this far. Whereas in a movie, if you give me 15 minutes of uh, that's really going to change kind of your audience's perception of the movie. Do you think that's an accurate observation? Well, let me so, yeah, completely. And there's, there's, I can't remember who said it, but they, this is the quote they said. They said, this is the difference between writing a book versus writing a screenplay. He said, writing a novel is like swimming in the ocean. Writing a screenplay is like swimming in the bathtub. So <laughs> I think you're exactly right. Um, I mean, I think what I would say, you know, on this podcast, because obviously there are a lot of novelists um, that listen, I would say, if you're a novelist, you absolutely can be a screenwriter and write a screenplay. And there are so many examples of people that have been novelists, that have been successful screenwriters, and have gone the other way as well. But all I would say is that what you have to realize is that they are different art forms and that you want to learn the structure and the foundations of screenwriting, and then you want to apply your talents that you learn in being a novelist to screenwriting with respect to character and dialogue and setting. But what you don't want to do is you 
you don't want to jump into a screenplay thinking all it is, all I need to do is put a scene heading and dialogue, you know, in a format and therefore, um, you know, I have a screenplay because that is, that is not the case at all. And I think the best analogy I can give is, you know, it's a novelist and a screenwriter. It's almost like having a basketball player and a football player. They're both great athletes, but they're different sports. So just learn the other sport and apply your athletic skills and you'll be awesome. That's a great example, and that's a, and that's a great sort of segue to a, a last thought. And, and actually, this is, this is in, another interesting parallel. In, in the Paris Review, Stephen King was interviewed, and he said there are two kinds of novelists or two kinds of writers. He said, you know, there's your genre writers, which he proudly considers himself, even though we, you know, sort of quote-unquote serious writers will look down their nose. He is proudly a popular pop genre, sell a million books writer. And he said, and then there are literary writers. And so the difference between the two is that the genre writer is writing for his audience. The literary writer is writing for himself. Do you think mm-hmm. that there are, this kind of brings us full circle to a little bit of the discussion about the three-act structure. And we, we may to have a follow-up podcast to talk about that because we're already going over time here. But do you see a similar phenomenon in filmmaking. I think of, you know, let me just throw out two examples, Steven Spielberg versus David Lynch. Um, are well, there filmmakers who are kind of being, who are more artistic auteurs, whatever you want to call them, versus I want to make people, I want to entertain people, make them feel, make move them, and so forth. No, I think, let me separate this out. I think, uh, you know, obviously the Academy Award, the, uh, you know, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Academy, you know, an incredible fraternity, sorority, if you will, of people, of professionals. But I also think that they've done over the years a disservice to moviegoers because in the films that they nominate, they've taught us that a movie that is dramatic, that is serious, that might be about somebody that's handicapped or some a subject matter that's very dark and depressing is a great movie. Whereas a movie like Back to the Future or Star Wars or The Hangover is not. And comedy in general is frowned upon. And, and we've learned that because I listen to people sometimes when I ask them what their favorite movies are. And they might say, I really love The Breakfast Club. But then they almost have to apologize. They, feel, they almost apologize for it. So, again, I think there's this huge chasm between what is supposedly an important movie and an important filmmaker and a mass filmmaker. Now, I can't speak to being a novelist because I've never been one, but I would argue that you can't, in screenwriting, you can't be self-indulgent in terms of writing for yourself because it is all about the audience. I worked at DreamWorks for three years. I was blessed enough to have an office, and it was about 40 yards from Steven Spielberg, who I saw every single day. Not that I spoke to him every day, but I did see the man. And in the limited interactions that I had with him or other filmmakers, whether it was Wes Craven or Michael Bay or... Uh, Michael Mann, um, the one commonality with all of those people is that when you hear them talk, when they're working on a film or a script, the, the common refrain you're going to hear from them is them talking about the audience. They want to know where's the audience at? Where are they, what are they thinking at this point in my movie? Where do I want them to be? Where am I going to take them? They're obsessed with the audience's experience. So the idea of an artist um, a 
I mean, look, all art is sharing your experiences and your insights, but I think that a lot of the successful filmmakers I've seen, um, there's nothing self-indulgent about it. It's very much they want to please and entertain and move a group of people, and it's not about them at all. Um, but so maybe those are just my experiences. I don't know. Well, I mean, and and again, there's another commonality, and that is over the last, you know, let's say 50, 70 years, as the publishing industry has gone through its sort of fits and throws, the most successful novelists, and, and, you know, again, we're defining success by how many books or how many tickets you sell, and we can have a whole other podcast about what the definition of artistic success is, but let's just use that as a sort of agreed-upon yardstick. It's the same thing. If you, if you talk to Stephen King and you ask what he wants to do, he wants to, well, he wants to scare the crap out of you, obviously. But he mm-hmm. wants to move you, he wants to affect you, he wants to keep you up till 3 o'clock in the morning reading his book. Whereas I imagine if you were to, you know, talk to a Faulkner or, well, let's give an example, David Foster Wallace. When, when David Foster Wallace was interviewed, and he is kind of a typical, quote-unquote, literary writer, he almost never talked about the audience except in sort of abstract terms. He was much more concerned with what illusions can I bring into my book, what different examples from history can I then sort of rationalize and, and make literary and so on and so forth. And that's great. I mean, if that's what you're into, that's fantastic. But there is that real difference between what people want to read and what writers want to write. And from what I'm hearing you say, that's that's less of an issue in Hollywood. And I guess that's because you're just not going to get funded. <laughs> No, I would all look how smart I am, look how creative I am, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, I mean, look, I, I, there's, there's obviously exceptions on both ends of the spectrum. Personally, my own ethos is that the more self-indulgent the writer, the worse the work. That it's about them and their experiences. And, it's, and this is the, the mistake people make is they say, I'm going to tell the story about my life because it, I experienced it and it moves me and it's personal to me. And if I therefore share it with the world, the world will also see that I'm special and that this was an important story. And that is not necessarily the case. My, my personal story is resonant to me. I don't think it should be a movie, but I think the story <laughs> of Chris Kyle, you know, the American sniper, that's a phenomenal story that I think should be told. So, I mean, if you are a screenwriter, and you just write for yourself, and it's all about you, if you have an incredible skill set with not just structure, but with character, dialogue, and a cinematic eye, well, then you're going to be able to get away with that. If you don't have those skills, that, those skill sets and you're that self-indulgent, it goes in the trash pile. You know? Um, well, and I so I don't I think... think I, and, and the other thing is, just because a movie is important, quote unquote, about an important subject, it doesn't mean it's good. And there's lots of examples. I won't name, name them publicly, but um, <laughs> oh come on, just not there, no. That, but the point is that um, a movie being either artistically salient or on a high artistic bar and being something that is massively consumed. Those don't need to be mutually exclusive. And I, I just, 
I just have a very vehement sort of reaction to that because I think, you know, you have a lot of people in coffee shops that liked the band before they became famous. And then once they did, therefore they're not as cool. And I don't have any interest or time in that personally, but. Well, and, and, and from, <laughs> from, from the novel writing or from the novelistic standpoint, I, I agree a hundred percent. And again, that could be yet another podcast, but I think one of the main differences is that to get even a art house film made, you need to scrape together a large chunk of money and get a lot of people involved. If you're a self-indulgent novelist and you can find a publisher or self-publish, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is the barriers to entry are maybe, because there's so much higher in film, there's kind of a, a natural selection process that doesn't happen in the literary world. Now, on the flip side, one of the positive consequences for the literary world is, look, I mean, in my opinion, you know, a, a work like Infinite Jest is just 1,200 overwrought pages of self-indulgent, self-indulgence, but, but there are a few ideas in there scattered throughout. There are a few passages that are just so transcendent that, thank God, the barrier to entry for a novel is lower because we have those passages. You know, Faulkner... You, how many people have actually sat down and read The Sound and the Fury? But the ideas and the characters and, and in some senses, the, the, the philosophy behind a book like The Sound and the Fury have so permeated, I would even argue, your art. It's mm-hmm. not conscious. It's not like we're saying we're constantly alluding to it. It almost becomes part of our artistic language. And in that regard, maybe the low barrier to entry for a book getting published, even if, you know, I mean, John Steinbeck's first work, uh, A Cup of Gold, its first print run, I think, was 500 copies, maybe less. And thank God. Thank God there was a publisher willing to take a flyer on this guy who wrote Like a Hick from Salinas. When, if he had gone to Hollywood and tried to sell a screenplay, probably we had never would have heard of John Steinbeck. And, and that's where self-indulgence, uh, you know, there's something, there's something to be said for it. Yes and no. I think... Look, I will first acknowledge that just there are such barriers to entry in Hollywood anyway for a uh, new writer, it, just in terms of getting your work read, whether it will be submitted or not. Um, and I get that. Do you know somebody? There's somebody that you know knows somebody. I completely understand that. Um, at the same time, these people in these jobs, whether it's an agent, a manager, a producer, or studio executive, they have these jobs. They don't want to say no. They want to say yes. They get paid to say yes. That's how they keep their job. So the point is that if you're able to get in the door, they want to love your screenplay. Like the dirty secret in Hollywood, what, what these studio execs want or even these producers or agents, they want, they want like American beauty to land on their desk. And it's a perfect script. And they don't have to do any work to it at all. All you need to do is just kick it up to their boss. You know, they came in, they found, and by the way, that movie was a spec script. That was the DreamWorks bot. That's how, that Alan Ball wrote. And they kick it up to their boss, and they make the movie, and the movie wins Best Picture. And they didn't have to do any work. That is the dream. So the point is, they want to say yes. What you want to do is you want to make it as easy for them to say yes as possible. And that doesn't mean you're making, you're dumbing it down or making it ordinary or anything like that. 
Are there exceptions to the rule of strips that fell through the cracks? Completely. But for the most part, accounting for the fact, let's say all things are equal and you can get your screenplay in, honestly, most of the ones that don't get there, they're just not good enough. And I know that a lot of writers probably don't want to hear that, but that's true. I mean, are there exceptions? Of course. Do we make mistakes? Of course. But on the majority, from a percentage place, it's not there. It's not good enough. doesn't mean that the writer isn't good enough, um, but that script isn't. And I mean, look, this is a longer conversation. It's one of my biggest complaints about Hollywood, having worked at an agency and as a producer and at the studio, is that there is a very unreliable, in terms of screenwriters learning their craft, how the business works, there is a very unreliable feedback loop. And that's also why it's difficult. That's a great place to wrap up. Um, I think where we're at right now is that the one universal is that a great story that keeps people on the tinterhooks and makes them say, my God, I have to know how this comes out. Is Denzel going to save the world or is the submarine going to launch its missiles? Is uh, the family going to be able to deliver grandma and bury her as she had asked for 90 years? I mean, those are, those are universal. Um, well, look, Jay, this was, this was really a lot of fun. I'm so glad that we did this and, and it went much longer than I anticipated, but, um, it was a lot of fun and I think people will learn a lot and I really appreciate it, man. So, well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. It was a real honor. And, uh, thank you for letting me drone on for way too long. Appreciate that. Never, man, never. That about does it. This is Christopher McGraw with Jason Alicia for Rare Bird Books. Signing off.